0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust you and we trust your word and your promises. As we've sang here, to this we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. We know that you will bring us home. And we hold to this, God, as we read these words, these ancient words, these ancient promises that are still for us today, yet as we look through your word, help us to believe, help us to receive with open minds and open hearts today. That God, you are the God who keeps his promises. You are the everlasting God who keeps his everlasting promises. And we're in the scope of those promises today. So, God be glorified as your word is preached. And may you bring hearts to yourself, may you bring people closer to yourself in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm not sure if you remember all the promises made to you by your parents when you were young, uh, whether they've kept them or whether they haven't kept them. I know... um, Some of these kept promises uh, that my parents made to me is happening this week. Some of you guys know we're headed to the States this week because my uh, parents promised us a free trip. uh, And uh, with one condition, they said, as long as you bring Luca. (laughs) As if we won't bring him. But um, they usually promised me things like that growing up. I remember my mom and dad telling me, Josh, we're going to bring you to Disneyland if you're a good boy. (laughs) It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) I remember my dad promising me, Josh, you're going to be a basketball player. And I realized this only if I make the NBA. (laughs) I think that could happen in a different lifetime, uh, in a different universe. But whether kept or unkept, big promises usually require big promise keepers. And, And in our passage today, as we've already read Uh, It actually hinges on a massive promise. If, If you look back in chapter 22, we would have gone over this last week. Chapter 22, verses 17 to 18, God promises Abraham this, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice and what we'll see here in the following verses in our passage today is that this is a promise past a lifetime that's what the sermon title is because that's the big idea of these passages that we'll see here and there's three big ideas that make this evident that this is a promise past a lifetime. And if you follow, I hope you have an outline there. Uh, The first one, the first evidence of this promise past a lifetime is through someone from Naor's line. Look at chapter 22, verse 20. Now, after these things, after Abraham offers up his son and God promises him these things because he obeyed, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has born children, To your brother Nahor. Up to this point, we've only heard about Abraham and his children. And here, the narrator now brings attention to the children of Abraham's brother, Nahor, and his wife Milcah, who we hear about in chapter 11. The narrator assumes that we know that background, specifically uh, chapter 11, verse 29 we have to ask the question, why? Well, if we keep reading, we'll see why. Verse 21, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hatzo, Pildash, Jithlaf, and Bethuel, and here there's a bracket, it says, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight, bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, Teba, Gaham, and Tahash, and Makkah. I really wanted to include these in today's scripture reading, but I remember we're supposed to build up one another. Uh, but the name that is emphasized in this list of interesting names here is, obviously, the brackets, Bethuel, who fathers Rebecca. If you've read the storyline of Genesis, you'll know that Rebecca is, at this point, Isaac's future wife, through whom the promised multiplication of Abraham's offering as the stars, as the sand, will come, in chapter 22, verse 17. And this is a hint, which this promise will be past a lifetime. Abraham and Sarah both, though recipients of the promise, will not see the fulfillment of this promise past a lifetime. But one important question to consider here is... What's so important about the rest of these names here? It's so tempting to just say, okay, these are just a bunch of names that leads up to the offspring of Abraham. But there's a couple of details we can't miss here. First, we can't miss that the inclusion of this genealogy right after the promises in verses 17 and 18 from God to Abraham shows that the book of Genesis is a literal and historically legitimate Um, This is really important that the narrator brings this out because it includes the rest of Nahor's line. Because we hear about it in chapter 11, and now in chapter 22, we hear about it again. Instead of just saying, Rebecca just comes from one of Abraham's brother's sons, the narrator shows that this is a legitimate historical document that diligently traces the promised offspring of Abraham from Nahor's line, which is Abraham's brother. Moreover, the significance of these names here come later on in the Old Testament since they're listed among foreign nations like the Philistines and the Arabians and even Chaldeans and Egyptians. You'll see that in Jeremiah 25, verses 20 to 24 if you're interested. But all of these would eventually be renowned enemies of Israel, later in scripture. Again, we've mentioned this before, but while these people and the people groups that come from these people are outside the scope of God's promises, they're still within the scope of God's purposes. And we're going to see that here in our following passage. But we can't miss the historical significance of these genealogies throughout the Bible, and they're not to be overlooked. In fact, this is significant for us today today. Right, because they have much to contribute to the reliability of Scripture, and in turn, our confidence in the Scriptures and our defense of the faith. So really important. Yet the emphasis remains in this genealogy, Bethuel fathers Rebekah, through whom the promised offspring of Abraham will come. But notice how Uz is the firstborn, so logically, that makes Bethuel the youngest because he's listed Last. Remember the tension with Ishmael as firstborn and then Isaac as the youngest being the chosen offspring? And later on, this will be the same tension with their kids, Isaac's kids and Rebekah's kids, Esau and Jacob. And Paul picks that up in Romans 9 when he says, The older will serve the younger so that God's purpose of election might continue. And in the same way that God chose a nobody like Abram back then from Terah's line, God chooses someone from Naor's line to bring about his promise, namely Bethuel, who fathers Rebekah. So there's many important details in this text, but that's the main importance is the mention of Bethuel as a father of Rebekah. And it foreshadows God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:17 and 18. Which will exceed Abraham and Sarah's lifetime in this promise past a lifetime as it's passed down to Isaac and Rebekah and their offspring. So that's the first big idea is that this promise past a lifetime will come through someone from Naor's line. But the second big idea, as you'll see in your outlines, that this promise past a lifetime is evidenced through the end of Sarah's life. And the first observation under that is that Sarah dies in the land. Look at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the life, uh, years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So about 37 years after the birth of her son Isaac, she was nine years old, Sarah dies. And many commentators have agreed and concluded that Sarah is actually the only woman in the Bible whose age was given on account of her death, which signifies her importance. Though a renowned matriarch, a recipient of the promise, Sarah doesn't receive the full extent of God's promise. She somewhat sees it, but from a far distance. God's agenda is that big. His promises are that big that it becomes for Sarah a promise past her lifetime. Yet even in that, there's a glimmer of hope here in the midst of this tragedy. Because as you look in the language in verse 2 there, she dies in where? The land of Canaan. She bore the promised offspring to Abraham at an old age and she sets foot in the promised land, yet she dies. And her death in the land will eventually be the means by which Abraham and his offspring take possession of the land. Yet this reality caves in here. The foreshadowed promise becomes an overshadowed promise for a moment to Sarah's death. And we'll see this in our second observation as Abraham weeps for his wife, the rest of verse two there. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Here the narrator doesn't fail to recount Abraham's response to the death of his beloved wife, which is what any loving husband of years and years in marriage would do and should do, mourn and weep. Likely, he would have went into her tent and mourned for her. That's the language there. The time frame here is unknown, but if we look throughout the Old Testament, they would have mourned their dead for days or weeks. see this in Genesis 37 and Genesis 50. Yet we have to ask the question, outside of mourning for his wife, does Abraham mourn the fact that the promise is past Sarah's lifetime? As in, my wife doesn't get to see this promise that God has given us. Maybe he was weeping because this was a reminder of his mortal fate as well, that he wasn't going to see the fullness of this promise, that it will also be a promise past his own lifetime. We're, We're not sure exactly, but we are told that Abraham mourns and weeps for his wife. And we're also told how he responds after His bereavement. In verse 3, in our third observation, when Abraham rises up from his dead. Whether Abraham mourned for seven days or 40 days, however long it took, there was always a decisive end date to the days of mourning throughout the Old Testament. They do that for Jacob, Israel. They mourn for days on end. They mourn uh, for Moses. Deuteronomy 34 for a number of days, but then God says, go on, take the land. When Sarah's death day came, Abraham appropriately mourns for his wife and weeps for his wife, but the day also came when he decisively rises up from his dead to get on with God's purposes for the rest of his days on earth. This has many implications for Christians today and how Christians deal with the death of loved ones today. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, do not be uninformed, brothers. At the resurrection, at the resurrection you will see one another again. Yet the main purpose, the primary purpose, as Abraham responds here, is God's purpose for his life, his remaining life on earth. So we're going to see that in Abraham's next steps here. And note that this narrative is focused less on Sarah's death and more on her burial site, as we'll see soon. It's less about Abraham losing a loved one in Sarah, though important, but it's more about Abraham gaining a piece of land in Canaan which the narrator gives more importance here. So our third big idea in this passage, the third evidence of this promise past a lifetime, is the purchase of Abraham's land. And our first observation under that is, Abraham asks for land to bury Sarah. Look at verse 3 halfway through. So Abraham said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you, Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Here Abraham acknowledges that he's a sojourner, a foreigner among the Hittites, who were the people of the land if you look down at verse 7, it's specified there. But what's interesting here is that the cultural norm and expectation back then for people would have been to bury their dead where? Back home. We talked about this in our Matthew series in Matthew 8 when uh, this person tells Jesus, Jesus, first let me go and bury my dead. At least let me first go home and bury my dead. That was the expectation, especially if they were on foreign land. Again, you'll see examples of this in Genesis 47 and Genesis 50. They would go back home to bury their dead with their families. And here's what's more interesting. Instead of going back to his home, to the land of his kindred, you see that in chapter 11, verse 28, Abraham instead goes to the land in Canaan by faith to bury his wife. What's the statement there? This is home. This is going to to be home. By faith, he buries his wife there. And we're going to hear about that. And though a sojourner and foreigner in the land, in a strange land, Abraham walks by faith, not by sight, as he holds on to this promise past a lifetime. And ironically, the people of the land, the Hittites, respond to the stranger's request in a strange way, which we'll see in our second observation when the Hittites offer their best tombs, verse 5 and 6. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Therefore, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So here Abraham, a sojourner, a foreigner in the land, is greeted by the people of the land as prince of God, as royalty. Why is that? Well, if you think back to Genesis 14, when Abraham rescued Lot by defeating the coalition of kings and pursuing them as far as Dan, and north of Damascus, geographically that would have been north, they would come from the southern part of the map, Abraham's fame from south to north grew as the kryptonite of kings who would have spread throughout the area. That's why he was well known from Beersheba all the way to Dan, and even north of Damascus, which was north of Dan. So not only was Abraham well-known, but the Hittites also refer to him as a prince of God. In the same way that Abraham was acknowledged by Melchizedek in Genesis 14, the king of Salem, and in Genesis 21, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, the Hittites here acknowledge that the blessing of God is indeed with Abraham, So they offer their best tombs to this mighty prince of God. And we'll see Abraham's response in our third observation when Abraham requests Ephron's cave. Verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah and entreat for me Ephron, which he owns, sorry. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. First notice Abraham's humility in his request. He bows down to the people of the land. Even after they acknowledge him as a mighty prince, of God, and second, his courteous tone, the language, his, his choice of words here expresses his dependence on the Hittites' favor, as opposed to demanding this property because of his newly found royal status. Right, the words, "Hear me, if you're willing, hear me, entreat for me this person that he may." Give me this. And third, Abraham offers to pay the full price of the property right at the front end of the deal. I mean, some of you here today have likely sold a house before, and wouldn't it be good news if someone made an offer for the full price that you wanted as their first offer? You know, on top of that, it would probably be better news if They entreated you, like, please, hear me out. Like, I want to buy house for the full price. You know, and the best news is if they bowed down to you in the process. But Abraham's head doesn't get big here. He doesn't act like a mighty prince. Instead, he acts humbly as a sojourner and foreigner. He He doesn't find his identity and worth in what people say about him, but rather trusts in who God is and what God has promised and said to him. So in doing so, he acts respectfully and humbly as a sojourner. And after he requests Ephron's cave here, we come to our fourth observation when Ephron offers his field as a gift. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. The first detail we must notice here is that Ephron was there the whole time. Ephron was sitting among the people at the city gate as they all witnessed this dialogue happening between Abraham and likely the elders of the city This is how transactions uh, of any kind happened back then. specific example of transactions at the city gate happens in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It gives details on uh, the the legalities and the nature of uh, legal transactions when Boaz redeems Ruth, uh, the Moabite, at the gate. But... Ephron was there the whole time. He was sitting among the Hittites who were there at the city gate. So that's the first detail we have to notice. Second, Ephron the Hittite was likely a prominent person in this people group. The hints we get there is one, Abraham refers to him in verse 10, if you look there, Abraham refers to him as Ephron, son of Zor, which hints on his renowned status. That's in verse 8. Sorry, I missed that one. 23 verse 8. Hints on his renowned status. And on top of that, Abraham is answered by Ephron on his own. Without any help from a mediator. Or at least there's no evidence of a mediator here. He may have been one of the elders at the city gate. We don't know. But this shows that he has power and authority to sell his property on his own. Because Ephron speaks for himself. So he was there the whole time, and he speaks for himself, which shows authority. And with all these things considered, we can now better understand the situation at hand. And Ephron's response in verse 11, when he says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Notice that he refers to Abraham as my Lord, like the Hittite elders did, like the Hittite people did. And he asks Abraham to hear him in response. And this seems to be negotiation terms here. Listen, if you would listen to me, if you would hear me. And Ephron proceeds to offer Abraham, not just the cave, I hope you noticed that, but now it's the whole field where the cave was located, and all of that as a gift see that evidence in the language of, I give to you. And you have to wonder, are the Hittites just a generous group of people? Is Ephron just a generous guy? Or are there ulterior motives here, considering that they see Abraham as a mighty prince, you know, this renowned prince of God that comes their way? And yes, we offer our best tombs. As a matter of fact, if you want this one, take the whole field There seems to be more evidence for the latter, the ulterior motives. But regardless, Ephron offers his field as a gift to Abraham. And note that he does so in the hearing of the Hittites. That is in front of the elders and all the people as witnesses at the city gate. Yet despite the generous offer, however, we'll see in our fifth observation that Abraham insists on buying the land. Verse 12. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Notice that he once again politely bows before the people, then specifically speaks to Ephron after that yet still in the hearing of the people. So two people negotiating, conversing in front of all the witnesses at the city gate. And the repetition of this language in the hearing, you'll see that all over those verses, in the hearing of the Hittites, in the presence of the people. Again, this emphasizes the importance of witnesses in such transactions like this back then. But essentially here, Abraham politely As he bows down, says to Ephron, Please, listen to me. I want to buy the field that you offer for its full price. Much like I did with the cave. Abraham doesn't resist the offer of the whole field here, but he still insists on buying it. To Abraham, buying the whole field for its full price, likely a higher price than just the cave now, It's still a clear precursor to burying Sarah, which is going to be important later on in the passage. But for now, in our sixth observation, we see that Ephron finally names his price, verses 14 and 15. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. We're not sure how much the cave alone would have been worth, but here we see the price value that Ephron gives for his whole field. And this might sound normal until we see and compare with other examples of land purchases later in Scripture. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, David buys land for 50 shekels of silver. In Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah buys a field for 17 shekels shekels of silver I hope you notice a difference and what makes me chuckle is Ephron's question for Abraham what is 400 shekels of silver between you and me bury your dead. today that's like owning a piece of land worth 40,000 and saying come on John what's 400,000 between you and me do your thing that regardless of whether Ephron was a great salesman or whether he was actually generous in offering such luxurious land as a gift to Abraham, just for him to bury his dead, we see in our seventh observation that Abraham listens and he purchases the land. Verse 16 Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. After numerous pleas to listen to each other, to hear one another back and forth, Abraham listens. That is, Abraham agrees. And Abraham gives Ephron every piece of silver that he asked for, according to the exchange rate at the time, the weights according to the merchants. And again, this all happens in the hearing of the Hittites, which makes this transaction legitimate and above and beyond legitimate. And so Abraham's full and legitimate purchase of the land ensures that Ephron or the Hittites can't revoke his rights or take credit for giving the land to him as a gift later on and use it against him for whatever reason. You know, Abraham does this with the king of Sodom in Genesis 14 when he says, uh, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say what? I have made Abram rich. God promised to give possession of the land to Abraham, not Ephron or the Hittites. In purchasing the land above and beyond market value with the riches that God had blessed him with, Abraham exercises in faith in Yahweh and his promise past a lifetime by eliminating any strings attached between him and the Hittites, between him and Ephron. And that's made clear in our eighth observation when Abraham gets possession of the land, verse 17. So the field of Epron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. There it is again. Before all who went in at the gate of his city. From the exact location of the field and its defined property lines with the caves and the trees, the specificity of detail here demonstrates the clear transfer of ownership or deed of sale from Ephron to Abraham. But there's something much bigger going on here. Look back at the language of God's promise in chapter 22. The end of verse 17 there. God promises Abraham that his, verbatim, offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Here in chapter 23, this promise, past a lifetime, begins its course when the field of Ephron, quote, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, future enemies of Abraham's offspring, before all who went in at the gate of their city which will eventually become the burial site for Abraham and his offspring in years to come. And it starts with Sarah. In our ninth observation, our last one under this, Abraham buries Sarah in his land, verse 19, 20. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. While well, the emphasis on this passage was on Abraham purchasing the land and this promise past a lifetime starting its course, there is zero evidence that was given from the burial of Sarah here that it was unimportant. There was a priority in the passage here according to the number of verses placed on there, but the narrator still gives important as he records the burial of Sarah. And Abraham rose up from before his dead earlier. He, he did that by faith in order to get possession of this land that God had promised to give him and his offspring and also that he might give his dead a proper burial. And one side note here, uh, this is the first burial ever mentioned in Scripture, and physical burials were consistently done for believers throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, I'm not making a decisive statement against other modes like cremation or cause an ethical war between both sides. Bodies decompose either way. However, the physical process of burial cannot be separated from the hope of the resurrection 1 Thessalonians 4, those who are dead, Paul says, are asleep in their graves. And one day they're going to be awakened when God raises them from the dead, from their graves. Moreover, and more importantly, the baptism of the Christian is symbolized by being buried with Christ and then raised to life with him. Romans six four, Colossians 2.12. But point being... The first burial recorded in Scripture suggests the importance of this process. Thus, the passage appropriately brings attention to the account of the honored matriarch's proper burial. Yet, more importantly, in Hebron, in the land of Canaan, in Abraham's land, at least now, this piece of land. And it's reinforced when the chapter ends in verse 20. When he says, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Ends with a confirmation God's promise is underway, that this promise passed a lifetime is given to him in part, but he's not going to see it in full. Sarah didn't. Yet Abraham walks by faith, rises up from his dead, buys this piece of land in the promised land, yet it was still tied to a grave, that 's where our passage ends today and don 't miss the ominous ending there that it ends with a picture of a grave from someone in naor 's line to the end of sarah 's life to the purchase of abraham 's land. This is all indicative of this promise god 's promise that 's past a lifetime it 's past sarah 's It'll eventually be past Abraham's. They see it in part and only in part because it wouldn't be until hundreds of years later, generation after generation of Abraham's offspring as the sand and the stars as he's promised. that that's only when the promise would be seen in full, Jesus Christ. Of course, the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. It tells of Jesus Christ and here, The promise in full is Jesus Christ, is the true offspring of Abraham. That's the first truth for us today is that Jesus Christ is the promise in full. Abraham receives his offspring in Isaac, but it only finds its fulfillment through the offspring of Isaac and Rebekah from Naor's line. And from there, generations later, comes the true offspring of Abraham. In Matthew chapter one, we hear, This Jesus would go on to live a perfect and sinless life in order to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. Yet the good news doesn't stop there. Because God would raise him from the dead in three days to defeat sin and death. The thing that Abraham couldn't do. Obviously Sarah couldn't defeat death. I hope today you know this Jesus that offers you true life, eternal life, beyond this life, beyond the grave, by believing in him as we 've been singing about and as we always gather to hear about, and this is what Abraham believed this is what he looked to right by faith, because he believed that God gives life to the dead romans four seventeen he believed that God can raise his offspring from the dead that 's why he offered up his only son Isaac. Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us insight on that. That Abraham believed that Isaac, that God could raise up Isaac from the dead and fulfill His promise. So Abraham went up that mountain to offer up his only son. And here, when his wife dies, Abraham rises up from his dead to walk by faith because he knows. That God gives true life to the dead because Jesus would eventually rise from the dead. As Romans 6 4, and Paul says, He is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that we, talking about the offspring of Abraham in Christ, that we too might walk in newness of life. When Abraham purchased that little piece of land as a seal of his offspring's inheritance to possess. We know that leads up to Jesus who goes on to pay for the sins of his people at Calvary, giving them his spirit before he ascends, after he ascends back to heaven as a seal of their inheritance in him until they acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians chapter one. That's where we are today. Unlike Abraham, we already have Jesus Christ, the promise in full. We have that full picture unlike Abraham. Yet, like Abraham, we haven't yet acquired full possession of our inheritance in Christ. That won't happen until Jesus returns on the last day and raises up his people to eternal life with him for eternity as he has promised. And God has given us his promise in full in Jesus Christ. So I I can't emphasize enough that this is a promise that I hope you believe. This Jesus I hope you believe in because it will be even fuller yet when we see him face to face and dwell with him in the new heavens, in the new earth for eternity. What we see from this passage here today is that God has done so much for Abraham in his lifetime and Sarah's lifetime God has done so much for us in this lifetime by sending his son and preserving his word for us to believe in the son so that we might have life in his name, but he'll do so much more for us later on at the resurrection or eternity when we're finally with the son. While you and I might not be alive on this earth when Christ comes to restore all things and put the whole earth into the hands of his people, as Matthew 5, 5 says, blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit, what? The whole earth. We might not be alive when that happens on this earth, but we act and live today in light of that promise coming and being fully realized. So as we wait, we live as Abraham did. We acknowledge, and here's our second point in our application this morning. We acknowledge that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. This comes from Hebrews 11 verse 13 as we read this morning. These all, Abraham and Sarah, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham acknowledged that he was a stranger to this earth even when he was faced with the reality of death, but especially when he was faced with the reality of death. That's why he mourns and weeps, but he rises up, knowing and believing that God brings dead people to life. He believed that one day every tear will be wiped away, that there would be no more death. Not only would he see Sarah again, but he would see his God, period. Death is not the end of the story. When we experience suffering in this life today, even to the point of death, how do we respond? I hope we respond like Abraham in Genesis 23 here. I hope we can stand and rise up. Stand secure in the affliction because it's only momentary. This is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory though our outer selves waste away our inner selves are being renewed each day. That we take up a cross and follow Jesus. Why? For we must suffer with him to the point of death so that we might be glorified with him. Whether it's the death of a loved one or maybe you realize that a loved one or even yourself is on the brink of death, whether young or old, disease or nothing, like Abraham, we rise up and walk by faith in God regardless because eternal life and eternal glory is ahead of us as we look to Christ, the one who brings us from death to life. When Abraham dealt with the people of the land, he didn't act like royalty, even though people acknowledged him as royalty. He didn't act like a prince who had rights to anything and everything in the land because why? He was a stranger to the land. I hope that's the same attitude we have today as we live in this land, in this life. Are we living like kings and queens in this life today with our heads held high, thinking we have rights to everything that we own? And by the way, that's possible even with a small or medium income life because that's a disposition, living like it's your life, living like it's our lives. It's not. You were bought with a price, Paul says. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your life. As Peter says, beloved, First Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Living as sojourners and exiles means that we live like Abraham did. It means we respond like Abraham did with the Hittites as we say no to the promises of the flesh, what this world offers us, because they're merely temporary. But we say yes to the future promises of God in Jesus Christ that can truly satisfy both need and want. Only Jesus Can truly satisfy. It means we act humbly and courteously whether you're at school or at work or in your community. When you interact with unbelievers in hope that they might see Jesus through your good works and repent from their evil works. That only comes from living like a stranger in exile. Abraham acknowledged that. Not just as a sojourner on Canaanite land, but as a stranger on the earth. Being strangers and exiles on this earth means that we hold everything on this earth not like this, but with open hands. We hold everything loosely, whether it's our time, whether it's our possessions. This means we don't just get to spend all the time doing things that we love with the people we love. Get involved in the life of your church here, even when it's hard to do at times, whether it's committing to things outside of Sunday mornings or going for coffee with someone you barely know. It's not just the programs, it's the people. We're saved as a people in Jesus Christ, as a possession for his glory. Get plugged in to the community here. And in your neighbors, sometimes they can be super hard, especially when they ignore you like my neighbor does. We're working on that. But the point is, this is not our home. We're strangers and exiles to this earth. This means we don't even treat our physical homes like our home for life. Even if we've literally bought a home here, you don't really own it. God owns your time. God owns your possessions. Jesus called no place home on earth. Right, Matthew eight twenty. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When Abraham purchased a piece of land here to guarantee his offspring's homeland in the future. Abraham knew that that physical homeland is tied to the grave. Why? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, that is the heavenly city whose designer and builder is the everlasting God. And that will be everlasting. That is our everlasting home because God is there. Jesus is there and his people, the redeemed people of Jesus Christ are there. So I hope for us today, as strangers and exiles on this earth, I hope we can live in light of God's future promises like Abraham did here. I hope we can look forward to our heavenly home that is where Christ is, where God is and his people will be. I hope we can sing these words as our anthem, which we'll sing in a little bit here. Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are an everlasting God whose promises shall stand forever and ever. And we hold to these promises by faith that these promises are much bigger than us. These promises are much bigger than this life and what this life can offer. So help us look past this life like Abraham did Help us to walk by faith, acknowledge that we're strangers and exiles on this earth, greeting the promises from afar, and looking to the heavenly city that is where you are, Jesus. And so we pray that in you alone we stand till we return, till you return and call us home. May we walk by faith and not by sight. May we hold on to your promises that last forever, past many lifetimes. May we be people of your word today and forevermore in your name, amen.